Our guest today is someone who sold their e-commerce business for a seven-figure exit and is talking about his lifestyle change, everything that went along with it and the new wealth that he came into on this episode of After the Exit. I sold my business and found it confusing about what's next, wealth management, lifestyle creep, concierge services, fat fire, and a ton more. This show, After the Exit, brings on guests who have experienced the same to share what they learned and helping others through the process. You'll notice also we keep everyone anonymous to allow them to help share a bit more. All right, let's jump into the episode. First of all, thank you for joining. It's been really cool to hear about your story so far in the e-commerce venture world and then plus later and everything you're doing now and have learned from. So just jumping in, like, where are you from? Where were you born? Obviously, there's a heavy accent that everybody's going to hear. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Germany, and I came to the States 10, 12 years ago when I was 24 and just kind of moved over with the two duffel bags, and that was it. Really? Wait, what What brought you to the States versus wanting to stay in Germany? Really, opportunity. I um, Even though it doesn't sound like it, because then I, I worked as a line cook for the next five years, but <laughs> for me, I think what I've learned since then is that I think I just connect with living in the States much more than I did in Germany. I think, especially when it comes to things like, and maybe we'll touch on this later, but, you know, taking risks and taking on debts and starting a business there. I, I feel like there's a lot of red tape in Germany and mm. uh, when it, when it comes to those things. And even though when I was 24, I didn't realize that consciously, I really had like an aha moment when I came to the States that, you know what? This is where I need to be. Interesting. Is there an example of some of the red tape that you remember in Germany for starting a business or? I mean, not that I remember it so much, but just the way that, you know, obviously at, at some point I had to break the news to my mom that I was just going to pack it up and, and leave and come to the States. And that was a difficult conversation. But now that she's been here recently, especially after the exit, we, we talked about how turns out it was the right move. And she herself said, you know, you couldn't have done what you did here in Germany. Just the ability to establish credit and get a loan and just take risks and kind of figure things out, you know, make a sale first before you figure everything out. I've talked to some business owners or people that are starting out trying to start a business in Germany. And it's like, well, let's make sure we have all the proper documentation in place and get registered with the tax authorities. And it's just is a lot of not exciting stuff that keeps people from doing it and never taking that step. That makes sense. What was the immigration process like? My wife had to go through that when she was a kid and she just talks about how it was, you know, five something years before she was able to have citizenship or like leave the US or I don't know how it went for you. It was years, yeah. We don't have to get into the whole thing, but just the process from visa to green card to then eventually becoming a citizen, which I am now, it was a long time, especially as you're, you know, waiting on your permanent green card, there's a period of time where your sort of initial green card runs out and you, it's very hard to leave the country at that time. It's possible, but yeah, it was difficult. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Line cook though. (laughs) So wait, tell us about that. Yeah. So I'd been working in kitchens for a minute. And when I came over, I 
wanted to do that. And the decision to work in the kitchen was one that's really fueled by how I, I realize I, I kind of approach everything. And it's by thinking about a worst case scenario. And I thought, you know what? If I learn how to cook, I'll always have a job. Like that's baseline level. And it's something that I also happen to enjoy. So I did that and I quickly moved into sort of more the fine dining environment. And then when I came out to LA, I spent most of my time in the kitchen at Spago, which was a great place to learn. And then the last year there, I became a sous chef and got a, just a little bit burned out on it and just was looking for a career change. And that goes right into, you know, how I ended up starting a business. All right. Yeah. I, I mean, that's really cool. It's a, I feel like this is the, the American story, right? Like moving for opportunity, working away from the bottom and then having, you know, an awesome exit and living the life you want. So yeah. So let's talk about the business, e-commerce business, but yeah, if you maybe start as to what it was and then, but how you really got started or found this niche. Uh, yeah. Okay. So after I quit cooking, I was working in a job in, you know, event production. I was working on major music festivals around the country. And because it was gig work, I was always working three weeks and then off three weeks. I just really had a lot of off time. And at one point I thought, you know what, maybe I should do something with all that off time other than like smoke weed and watch Netflix. <laughs> and again, because it was gig work and the, the money wasn't steady. I, at the time I remember thinking, you know what, it would be really cool if I could make an extra 300 bucks a month. And at the time my girlfriend had been, you know, selling some vintage clothes online and she was making jewelry that she was selling on Etsy. And initially I thought, you know what, maybe I'll just help her do it. Cause she had a day job and she had kind of neglected it. So I thought, you know, I can make some listings and take some photography and all that stuff. And then very quickly realized that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. But I did know, you know, whatever I was going to do, I would have to be able to do from anywhere because I was still traveling for work. And so somebody in a friend circle had found out that that's what I was looking for. And they just texted, sent me a random text like, hey, you should Google Amazon FBA. And when you do that, at least at the time, I think this was 2016, you find a lot of videos on YouTube going, this is how you can make $20,000 a month, like one hour of time. And it's just a site. And I just thought, okay, it's a scam for sure. Yeah. Well, those are still there too. Yeah, I guess Maybe so. Maybe even more so now. <laughs> but I, I mean, I definitely understood how if you take fulfillment out of the equation, you know, that, that there's a, a big lever that you can apply to a business. And so I, I researched it a little bit more and I found a, a book that's just like a Kindle ebook that somebody was selling that talked about, hey, look, you really can make this work. It's a little bit more like a job and it's going to be hard work at first, but it's possible. And that's when I thought, okay, I'll give this a closer look. And what this person and their book was talking about, and people still do this, is this concept of like retail and online arbitrage where you go around stores like Marshalls and, and Target or whatever, and you find things on sale that you can flip for a profit on Amazon. And I did that for like a weekend. Wait, what were you looking for? Or what was the stuff you were buying? I mean, at the time I had no clue 
And I think I just went to like a Marshall's and you scan things with a little like Amazon seller app and look if there's a profit in it. And then if there is, you buy it. And then I was sitting in my kitchen, peeling off labels, preparing to send this stuff to Amazon. And I thought, okay, no, this is also miserable. I don't want to be doing this. So then there's online arbitrage where you basically do the same thing. And there's like software out there now that just scans thousands of stores by UPCs and compares them to what Amazon has in their system. And people do it. Like people have for sure, you know, created these little jobs for themselves where they just go around and flip stuff and whether or not they drive to stores where apparently the margins are higher because you have local sales or you just buy things online where anybody can compete then they have it shipped to their home or like a prep center and they relabel it and they sell it on Amazon. And people are, I think it's kind of the dream is to have a full-time income doing that, working part-time hours, or at least, you know, making your own schedule and be there for like your family, your kids, your hobbies while making a solid living. Do you know, by the way, what one of those apps are called? Yeah. The big one is Tactical Arbitrage, which is like a monthly subscription. And it's a piece of a software. At least it was when I used it. I'm sure it's even more so now. Interesting. Okay. So so, around this stuff, like you can find it. But you had to manually basically look up the product, search, compare the price, see if this was something that there was margin in. Right. So a lot of the, the steps are sort of automated for you, but then you still have to make the decision of, okay, I'm going to take, take a chance on this one. And then you can do this thing just from your computer if you use a prep center and then you pay them a fee like a per unit fee to relabel it and send it back to amazon but yeah you can do that from your computer and i was doing that for for a minute and then the next step with that was to because you'll find products that that you can make a profit on and then you'll try to rebuy those same products and then you think man wouldn't it be nice if i could go straight to the manufacturer so then you have what what people call the wholesale business there are brands out there that just kind of don't, you know, know how to sell on Amazon or how to brand their stuff on Amazon. They just don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And people approach those brands and say, hey, look, I'll sell it for retail on Amazon if you sell it to me at a good margin, and then you don't have to worry about it. And so then that's the ne- sort of the next step if you want to go that route. And I did that for a minute. And so I kind of learned, you know, learning by doing the the steps of how to sell things on Amazon. Can you share like what you were making then roughly or like, because this sounds like a really cool hobby or I guess something that you were doing while you were working at the event company. Yes. At that time, I wasn't really paying myself. I was certainly keeping track of profit, but because it was totally like I started this business with a just like a credit card that had a promotional APR period and a $5,000 limit. And I just bought like, I think it was action figures and some other stuff that I maxed out the credit card. And again, this comes back to like my worst case thinking, okay, if this just doesn't work, can I pay off these $5,000 in the next 18 months? Okay, I think I can manage. I'm going to just take this risk. But then because I started out debt funded, I had to take on ever, you know, more debt and to just grow the business. I always threw everything right back at the business. So when I was doing some of that online arbitrage and some of that wholesaling. I think the first year still doing it part-time, my revenue was a quarter million dollars. That is insane. I know. I mean, it's pretty crazy for some, again, a couple hours a month. Yeah. And that's when I had the realization, okay, look, if I just 
make that jump, I probably can get to a million dollars in revenue. Do you remember what the margin was? Because I'm thinking, right, you're buying stuff and coming from the software world, you know, it's obviously different. I'm going to say it was probably, I mean, again, the the arbitrage thing was pretty random. A lot of things you would sell, you know, at 100% ROI, and then some of them you would sell at a small loss as well. But over time, it probably I want to say it even out to maybe like a 30% margin. And you were taking the stuff, shipping it to Amazon so that they could do the fulfillment. Were you buying it online or are you still buying it in stores and shipping it to them? No, I, I did the store thing for a weekend. I thought it was just miserable trying to pick and pack everything. So I immediately realized, okay, no, I just have to use a prep center and send it to them. And then you just keep spreadsheets and tell them what to send and when to send it. Got it. So it was like, a, you know, you found some sort of wholesaler for the for the action figures, sent it to the... And prep center who you know separated them labeled them like you said and then they forwarded it to amazon yeah for and companies which have sent it straight to amazon i was selling these bike helmets like bmx helmets for a minute that the manufacturer just sent straight to amazon there were a couple of interesting products that nobody <laughs> would think you know that there could be something in it i remember telling my mom at the time and she's like what is it that you're doing and i was like i don't know but it worked <laughs> what was one interesting one there is a product that did really well for me and people still love it. Sometimes I go back and I look at it. It's like a little, it's a thing you put in your kitchen and it's wooden dowels that come out and you put your used Ziploc bags on it so that they can dry and you can reuse them the next day. Really? Yeah. Very mm-hmm. random. I've never even heard of that, but you know, I also don't know. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you started, you know, half or a quarter of a million the first year, which is massive, where does the scaling go from there? So at the end of that year, I had two sort of big realizations. And one was this wholesale stuff is great, but I don't have any creative control over the listings. Other people can do the same thing. And I think I'm better off selling my own branded stuff. And so then private label was sort of the obvious next step that people were talking about. And at the same time, I realized, like I said, if I just did this full time, I can get to a million. Again, that was a really crazy number in my head at that point. And so at the end of 2017, I decided 2018 was going to be full year. I'm just doing this. And something happened at the same time. And this is where people might end up just looking it up. But I, I've been a record collector since I was a teenager. And at the end of 2017, I was looking to buy some record sleeves for my record, these plastic bags that you store your vinyl records in so they don't accumulate dust and dirt. And I just thought to myself, look, where do I buy these? I haven't seen them at the record store. Maybe they'll be on Amazon. And then because I've been on Amazon selling just random stuff for a while, I knew when I typed it in and the search results were loading that people are selling these things, one, there's demand for them, and the branding overall is completely horrible. So I thought, okay, let me just try this out. Like literal light bulb went off and I got out and I got some quotes from suppliers in China and Taiwan, and they were able to make them for super cheap. And I placed a test order. I started a little design contest on 99designs for the product packaging. I just went with one, it cost me 500 bucks. And that test order sold out in a month. Wow. 
Do you remember how many? What was the quantity for that, or how many you know you ordered from I China? Two variations, probably a thousand of each, and it was just wild. So then immediately I knew, okay, this is fantastic. Plus, I did make some improvements to the product that that was already on Amazon by using a different material, and people loved them. Like I got tons of crazy reviews and good feedback. So then in 2018, I just went full full blast into this record collector niche where I launched more sleeve variations, a couple of record cleaning brushes and cleaning kits and things like that. And then, yeah, I just off to the races. I scraped that, that million revenue goal that I had at the beginning of the year. That was year two. I mean, that was year one full time. So year two of selling, yeah, but year one where I was doing it full time. Holy cow, that's incredible. Were you, was this all natural sort of Amazon SEO that the products were being found on? Or, you know, I don't know a ton about selling on Amazon, but it seems like there's paid ads, but there's also this sort of search engine-ish aspect of it. Yeah, so if you, I mean, it's pretty easy to get in front of customers' eyes on Amazon by just paying for the ads that put you on top of the search results. And then depending on how much competition there is in a niche, you either have to pay a lot or very little for those ads. And because when I started, nobody was advertising these products at all. I was able to be top of search right away. It was like a, almost like a blue ocean type situation. And yeah, it it ranked really very quickly. So I I really got lucky in a way in finding that niche and just realizing that this is what I'm going to do. Very cool. All right. So when did someone come along looking to acquire the company? So there's a bigger picture there. And that is what everyone is sort of talking about now or or the consequences of. And that is that the, the pandemic happened. And in March 2020, there were two weeks where I think everybody thought, okay, this was it. I'm just going to end up on the street. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's no sales. You just log in and it's like, oh my God. And I applied for a EIDL loan, just not knowing what was going to happen. But then after those two weeks, business started picking up and e-com, everybody was shopping online. Everyone remembers that. And then in my niche, record collecting is a very, very indoor hobby. And I know that I went through my records and, you know, reorganized everything. So it was like a double boon. Plus people are having stimulus checks. 2020 was really like a gangbusters year. So in just to put this in perspective, my first year, 2018, I did a million in revenue. The second year, it was two. And then in 2020, it was four. Wow. Or just over four. So it basically doubled every year. And the the, the cool thing was when business was... <laughs> when I thought it was over and I applied for that EIDL loan, by the time I got the funds, business was so crazy that I thought, okay, this all goes into new products and inventory and let's just go, you know, balls to the wall, put it all back in the company and in the business. By the way, was this just you or was there a team? So it was me. I had a VA in the Philippines and I had a customer service VA that was in the States. Got it. Okay. So margins must have been very good, it sounds like. Although you are pouring back into inventory to buy, to sell in the future, though, here, huh? Yeah, and I I mean, I was pretty conservative with what I paid myself, so I was able to grow grow the business. I don't know, this is the the German in me that's just cut expenses, cut expenses, and and I was doing pretty lean chip. 
But yeah, and the the other thing that happened in 2020 is there was a lot of money going around or a lot of institutional money going around as well. So what had started a little bit before then was in the Amazon space, these companies formed that, that we call them aggregators. And they're basically these little private equity shops that go around and buy Amazon brands that are doing well and then consolidate back office and just, you know, do a roll up. Got it. So what had started as a trickle with all that money that was coming into the market at the end of 2020, there were maybe dozens of these companies by the middle of 21, there was probably a hundred or more and they were buying up every business. And somebody had cold emailed me, I think in late 2020 going, I want to buy your business. And I had never even thought about it. Like I didn't even know it was possible. Yeah. That's how I felt too. <laughs> yeah. You know, things are going well and you're, you're paying yourself and I wasn't working too much. Like if you have things streamlined, I was working a couple hours a week. So I, I was basically almost living the dream already. And then somebody goes, we want to buy your business. And I kind of just told them to fuck off. Did you respond to it or did you just ignore it? I think I ignored the first one. Then they emailed me just going, hey, look, we're really serious. Do you want to just do a quick meeting? And we just did a Zoom meeting and they, you know, introduced themselves. I really kind of didn't trust it yet. And then they sent an offer over and I just kind of wasn't impressed. And then I told them, no, the, you know, pond sand. Uh, hard to get. <laughs> and they came back two weeks later with another offer. And at that point, I was like, you thinking about it. You have to think about it now. What percentage higher was the second offer from the first one? I want to say it was 50% higher. Significant. Got it. Yeah. It was, I mean, that market was really heating up at that time already. And then I just got really lucky. I was using a bookkeeping firm that I'm happy to shout out. They're called BooksKeep. BooksKeep. Yeah. And they're specializing in... In BooksKeep.com. Yeah, they're specializing in, in e-commerce books. You know, every e-commerce seller, especially when they're growing rapidly like I did, you're always sort of walking this fine line between inventory and cash flow. And it can get really confusing if you don't have somebody kind of holding your hand. And just a little bit... Like my background was the kitchen. Like when I started the business, I didn't know how to make a spreadsheet. Like I took a like an online course on Google Sheets just to like learn. You're Google Sheets certified now. <laughs> I didn't make it. I just like found the resume. The three modules that I needed. Yeah. And so Bookskeep had clients that were all e-commerce sellers and all different kinds of e-commerce sellers. You know, some were selling wholesale through their own website and some were selling on Amazon and some people are using Google ads. And what they thought was, why don't we create these little like trusted circle mastermind groups where we put four or five sellers together that, you know, they all can sort of learn from each other. And when I was getting the offer around that time, we had just started with one of those mastermind groups. And so I was telling those guys about it. And somebody said, wait a second, I know somebody who just sold their business. It was just like yours, like an FBA business. They had a really good experience. Why don't you talk to them? And so through a string of referrals, I was connected with a broker. And for me, that was kind of the best thing that could have happened because what I'm not is a salesperson, even though in e kind of funny you're selling stuff but 
you couldn't be further removed from the customer in a way. And your sales pitch just kind of happens on the listing, which somebody else ideally wrote. So I knew I needed to find somebody to, to kind of go out there and sell this thing, especially because the market was being so crazy at the time. So yeah, I, I found a really good broker that kind of put the offer that that first uh, aggregator made in perspective and said, look, I think you can probably triple it. Wait, from the second offer or the very first? Oh, okay, from the second one. Yeah, yeah that's so interesting because we had many emails as well coming in, but for I think a year or two, I was just like, Mark is red, Mark is red, delete, delete. I thought they were spam, honestly. So I had a part-time assistant and I was like, she's like, what do you want me to do with these emails? And I said, anything that says capital or partners or something like that, just mark is red. Like it's just, it's, it's a con. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But when I definitely picked up one, absolutely same mental mindset of, oh shoot, I don't know anything about this. I've never gone through, like, this isn't something you do every day. You're not working out. This happens maybe once in a lifetime, maybe a couple, who knows. Right. But anyway, go on, go on. Uh, Yeah. So anyways, they kind of put it in perspective. And another thing that I got out of talking with people that had already done it was, you know, you shouldn't just sell because you can get to a big number. You should sell when you can get to a number that just makes sense for you. And so I started with the end in mind and I just looked at, you know, if I want to just kind of take some chips off the table, but maintain my current lifestyle, what's that number? And I came up with a number and I talked to a broker thinking, you know, maybe in one and two years, this can happen for me if I grow the business a little more. And they said, no, no, you can make this happen now. So then I, I got onboarded with them, took about a month. Then I think it was be- before they even put a memorandum together, they just kind of talked to some people about my deal. And those people were really interested. So then the way that we did it was we approached, you know, maybe four or five of these aggregators that were out there. And we said, look, we'll give you first dibs if you're willing to put a little extra on the table for the privilege. So kind of create some competition there. Yeah, exactly. Before even going to, to broad market. And then a couple of offers came in and they were just all where they needed to be for me. And then we had some Zoom meetings and I went with the one that was the best fit. And then we did 30 days, now 45 days of due diligence. And that was it. So start to finish, it was just over six months from from getting the offer to signing the purchase agreement. That's amazing. Do you remember roughly what the broker cost? Like, was it a flat fee? Was it a percentage? Yeah, it was a percentage fee. I think it was 10% up to the first million and then 9% over that. Got it. Got it. And it's really interesting that you talk about starting at the exit in that like, here's the number that supports my lifestyle. And then backing in as to like, can this like key fit in that hole and using the broker to essentially make it happen for you? Yeah. I mean, obviously you did all the work to like set it up and everything and and build the key, but that is a really interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've always been, I've always started with the you know, the end goal in mind and what purpose does this serve if I make any sort of decision? And that just kind of helps clear things up a lot. What are we optimizing for? Did you, through everything, do you feel like you hit your number? Now? No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so the number's changed? Or rather you hit it, but you think it's higher now? 
Well, what I didn't realize is that my drive doesn't just stop after you hit some magical number. And th that's probably the biggest takeaway from the whole experience. I still, I, I just kind of thought, you know, you hit the number, go with 3% safe withdrawal rule and just live happily ever after. But that, that's just not how it goes, at least for me. Yeah, you're just, you're hungry for, for something else. I want to talk about that and like some of the lifestyle and stuff around that because that's really interesting too. Do you, first due diligence process, how was that? It was pretty exhausting for me going through it for a couple of months, but. So for me, it was, it was a little bit of a hurry up and wait situation. I, again, the German in me had everything in the business sort of really buttoned up. Like I, I knew where everything was. I had numbers for everything. Hey, what percentage of your revenue do you spend on marketing? Boom. Like I had it, I had it all everywhere. And there was a couple of things that I just had to, you know, clean up or, you know, get taken care of. And then it was just really a lot of waiting on due diligence from the counterparty, which was like one of the most horrible months that I've had where I just oh, kept... just nervous every time you send docs back over. It's just going to fall apart. They're going to find something that they don't like. There's, oh, there's a new competitor that just started next, like two weeks ago. And I don't know. I just wouldn't let myself believe it, I guess. Are you able to share or, or like a rough range or figures or something around, you know, acquisition or, or the number you were at to give a sense? So I'm happy to talk about that. I think in, look, I'll first of all say I didn't come into like a crazy amount of money. Obviously that's kind of relative, but it really is just that I live in a, you know, like a nice little house in Los Angeles. I don't have a really crazy lifestyle. And I'm now able to kind of support this through the the acquisition or the exit, rather. I did the, sell the business into a really, really hot market. If you look now, it's completely tanked. And I think the multiples that are going out in the space are like one and a half to two and a half. And mm -hmm. the multiple of EBITDA that I was offered was over six. So that, that just kind of, and that's with earnouts included with, one of them we already didn't hit in this economy, but it, it just goes to show how how kind of crazy it was. Wow, interesting. Like for rough ideas, it like seven figure, eight figure, and of course you could just be like, eh, decline. But we're in the seven. Got it. Okay, cool. And so when you hit this, and you talk about this was your number. Where do you feel like your number is now? Well, I mean now. Oh, and you talk about also earnout. Actually, I'll ask you that after. So, so yeah. So, talk about this this number shift. Well, now having learned, you know what I did in the past year and a half since the exit was that there probably isn't a number that's ever going to be like okay, like made it. I think what really mattered to me was as while I sort of still held the reins in the business, there's always. I always saw an avenue, okay, we're going to do this next. And then the, the business is going to grow from this. And then we're going to do launch another product, expand into another market. And that kind of all went away. And I didn't know that that was really kind of the important thing, you know, just to have that, that sort of opportunity for growth in the business. Like when one of my big like maxims, when I started the business was you either grow or you die. And so I always had this drive to find some avenue of growth. And then, you know, after the acquisition that it, it kind of went away, but I, I just needed it. And, and I still do. Interesting. You know, 
that probably isn't true at some point anymore. The, the growth probably takes a different route. It doesn't have to be monetary. Did you ever think about moving? Because you said you're in Los Angeles. So did you ever think about moving for lower taxes when you sold? For lower taxes, no, I don't think so. Certainly, as anybody would, and anybody who lives in LA has thought in the last two years at some point about moving. If you look at the property market elsewhere in the country, it just can feel sometimes like maybe you're not getting a lot of bang for your buck living here, especially at home prices by square foot. So yeah, certainly thought about it, but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> would you have sold again if you know if you went back or, or would you have held longer? No, I would have done everything exactly the same way. <laughs> I mean, I got extremely lucky with timing Yeah, on when I sold the business. I got extremely lucky that everything went so well because I know a lot about this stuff now, but I really didn't when I signed the purchase agreement. As far as the acquisition process or what? Yeah, the acquisition process. What does the market look like? What's realistic? And I mean, a lot of things have changed since then. And it's just been a, a continuous learning just about, you know, acquisitions, macroeconomics. It's that just been a really whirlwind. Yeah. What is your thoughts on, or first, right when it happened, did you buy anything cool? I did. Uh, yeah, not buying anything cool. We, we just took a very nice trip to Hawaii right away. Which island? We sort of had this target date of closing the deal on the 1st of June and 21. And then we ended up closing on, on the 15th or 16th, I think, which was the day of the flight. So I, I ended, it was really just a crazy whirlwind of a day where I go to the gym thinking this is never going to happen today. I'll just have to do it next week when I'm already sort of on vacation. And so went to the gym and then everything happened on the back end where lawyers were sending documents back and forth. And I got out of the gym just sitting in the changing room and I have like missed calls and texts of going, everyone is waiting for your signature. What are you doing? So I just docu-signed it right there, like in my sweaty workout clothes, went home, got on the flight and just slept for like the entire flight. When did the, did the wire hit then when you're at the gym? It, no, it was like four days later. Uh, okay. How did that feel? International wire. Pretty unreal, to be honest. It was really, really unreal. Obviously, like you're checking your bank account the entire time. Yeah, yeah, hitting refresh. But then, yeah, it was, it was a Friday when we signed, so it didn't hit till Monday, I think. So that's cool. You're like, wow, is this is this real or? It's pretty unreal. And then you just start thinking about like, oh man, I really should get a better password for my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> first name uh exclamation mark or something dollar sign is not gonna cut it password, yeah <laughs> so bought a, a trip any other cool things like i don't know some people i've heard do our watches or um yeah it took a couple of months but i sold my dodge truck that i had and bought a bmw nice that's awesome do you have any regrets with it all like one thing I was always thought about is, did I maximize the value just because I didn't necessarily, like I, I felt great, but at the same time, were there things that I missed or didn't do potentially to have optimized that? And, you know, maybe it sounds like greedy, but it's like also, that's how I'm always thinking about it is 
more opportunistic? I try not to. Of course, sometimes you think about, you know, what could you have done? But then a lot of those things you only would change now because you have that hindsight. Could I have gone out and, you know, presented this deal to 30 companies instead of those five that we approached? Sure. But then, I don't know, at the end of the day, I don't really optimize for maximizing value. I optimize for maximizing sleep. So <laughs> I just <laughs> want to be able to go to bed at night. I just try not to think about it. What, okay, so what about your lifestyle? Has that changed after? A little bit. And it really is mostly in small ways where I just, like everyone has sort of a worry-free number where they go, okay, this $5 latte, I don't care. I'll just, you know, spend the money and not think about it. And a lot of the, the, I would say, like convenience spending where it's like, no, just pay the money. Just don't think about it. You'll be better off optimizing, removing the decision. So I, I like going to the grocery store, I just buy what I want. Like, it's great. It's, I don't know. <laughs> I was really, really sort of poor in my 20s. And in a way, I'm still there. But that lets me enjoy my life now so much more. So like the convenience number, essentially that limit went up, you're saying. Yeah. Where yep. do you feel like the number is where you think about it twice? Is it $50, $100, uh, $1,000? I wish I was consistent that I could put something <laughs> So it maybe depends on the item? Yeah. What about maybe a restaurant? I feel like that was one strong example that may have changed, whereas prices at a restaurant, granted, not going to Michelin star this or that, but like, you know, if it's a $30 meal, not necessarily paying attention, whereas before I was definitely like eyeing the price of items. Okay. My situation is a little different there because the Michelin star type restaurant, just because of my background of chefing for a minute. Oh, you I'm, enjoy it. I tend to be less impressed by. Okay. Because while I know what's going on behind the scenes, I also know, you know, I can make a lot of this stuff. Uh, I gotcha. And then also... Like at the heart of it, I'm a really simple guy and my favorite food is like a breakfast sandwich. Okay. So is there like an item that you've noticed maybe that that you buy that you didn't use to care about or, or you did care about the price, but now you, you don't? No. I also don't spend a lot of money on clothes. Like it's basically just like sweatpants around the house all day for me. <laughs> Got it. So, yeah. So it's it, it sounds like it's just like the more minute things, like you mentioned, you know, lattes or things like that. That's just yeah, sure, get it. Yeah. What about investing? So wire hits, you take it easy. There's a breather. You mentioned there's an earnout, but you know, it's like all right, it's in this checking account. Now what? Okay. So I mean. Again, this sort of went for me with the, the, the sort of end goal in mind was let's just put it in the index funds and never think about it again and just kind of withdraw a low percentage. That was kind of my thinking about it. When you read about what should you do when you experience a windfall, people say don't do anything for like a year, year and a half. And... I know from my own experience that advice is true. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, what I've learned in order to keep a majority of the money sort of locked up in things like very, very boring index funds, I also have to give myself a small percentage to play with. That's just an, it's just the price for me of having everything else locked up 
so that I can kind of play around with more fun investments. And so, all right, so after a year, you started dollar cost averaging or you just dump it all in? And then what indexes did you pick? So again, I have to say I optimize for sleep. So I know it's something people talk about. I use an investment advisor. She has a small firm. I trust her. We didn't exactly DCA, but we just kind of, I guess not on a daily schedule, but then we did go into the market and it was a bad time to go into it in the middle of 21. <laughs> but you know what they say, it's time in the market, not timing the market. Sure. So I see a lot of sort of short-term pain for long-term pain. That's how I try to keep my spirits up looking at the balance. There is a lot of talk about the using a financial advisor versus not. Obviously, most of it comes around just the fees, but I think you're right. Like, If you want to maximize for not having to think about it much, if at all, especially if you trust the advisor, that's definitely the way to go. Would you have picked that decision again now going back and, and you know having worked with them for a year or so? Yeah, 100%. I, it, and again, I don't think it's a like a yes or no on whether or not you use an investment advisor the same way that it's not a yes or no on whether or not you pay off your mortgage versus investing. It just depends on what kind of person you are. And I know that I just need somebody to kind of throw ideas back and forth, you know, ask, hey, do you think this is a good idea? And then whether or not I agree with them doesn't so much matter. Then, you know, it matters much more having the conversation. That makes sense. Do you remember the indexes too? Like, was it S&P 500 type or total world indexes? Or It's a lot of different stuff. I don't think I, I can really get into it with a lot of detail. Got it. Okay. A lot of different stuff. And then, but you did mention that there's like kind of a fun investment portion, like some sort of like single digit percentage that you'll take and invest in other stuff that you like. Yeah. And again, it's like, quote unquote, fun stuff. So I did put some money in Bitcoin, which was also really terrible timing. But I, again, it's it's one of those things. I'm still happy that I did it because that forced me to learn a lot about it. And then I put some money in watches as well. I traded up cars. Fun things that I think have limited downside. Gotcha. Cool. Crypto does not have limited downside. <laughs> as long as it's not an FTX, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Or Lunar. Yeah. <laughs> and then you talked about separately when we met about the book Die with Zero, which comes up a lot on the Fat Fire forums as well. You read that. Did that change your thinking? It's just around lifestyle and you know how, how you view wealth? Yeah. I think I mean a little bit when I was reading it, I was just like, oh, here's my excuse to just spend a little bit more money. <laughs> that was yeah. a lot. You're like sort of, ask, it's like asking people to confirm, a, you know, something that you want to do. It's, you know, sometimes yeah. I'll be like, oh, mom, should I go, should I buy, you know, this jacket? Because I know that she'll be, yeah, you know, you should. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, we get our like confirmation bias from somewhere else in a way. Right. You know, I really like that book. I think it puts a lot of things in perspective. If you, you know, just add that variable of your own age to to the whole equation. And there certainly are things that you can enjoy while you're young, but you can't when you're old. Yeah. So that plus the sort of bring in the concept of, you know, maybe there's not a safe withdrawal rate, but there's a variable withdrawal rate. I don't think I'll be spending as much money as I am now when I'm 
in my seventies. I don't see it. Is there anything that that like really changed it? Like, where was it? Like, oh, I'm gonna go. I want to go buy this experience, or I want to. I'm gonna change how I do this every day, or something like that. So when I was younger, I had this this wild dream of one day being able to just travel the world for a year, and I never kind of had the means to do it. And then when I did. I had almost sort of forgotten about it, and it w- I always kind of pushed it in the back of my head. It's like, yeah, but now I have the business, and I can't. it's all just these excuses. And when I read that with zero, I re- suddenly realized, hey, you know what? I don't have that excuse anymore. So I just sat down and just kind of calculated, hey, worst case scenario, if I wanted to do that, what would it cost me? Is that a life-changing amount? Is it a life-changing experience? No? Yes? I think I probably should start thinking about doing it now. So I did make some loose plans and I think it's it's likely to happen in the future. Wow. All right. That's awesome. All right. So shouts out to Diet with Zero. I'm starting to go through it finally. So I'm excited to keep rolling. All right. So and then the last part here is just looking forward. It sounds like you're still pretty hungry. Did you have to take a break to sort of cool off and then now you're fired up again? Or was it always you just move forward and you know, you're pushing for it again or what? So I took a really short break. I think it was like a month or two. Were you burned out before that? No. I think I just realized I needed to just, hey, you know, I'm a very big on like self-discipline because I know I'm at the bottom of it. I'm just a kind of a lazy guy. So I make myself get up at 530 and then I just do my workout and then I get into work and then I get it all done because the later it gets in the day, the I know if something happens after two and I'm like, now I have to do, I just am not very likely to do it. So I took a month or two off where I was just like, I'm just going to sleep in and, you know, not worry about doing anything for work. And I'll check my email once a week and do all that stuff. And then realize that that just doesn't do anything for me. I'm really kind of happy waking up at five 30 and doing my thing and getting in there. And I didn't wait very long. I think it was in fact, During due diligence, I realized, you know what? I don't have a paycheck coming in. I should probably start something new. And then I did just very small scale bootstraps. Same thing. Selling stuff on Amazon. (laughs) Has the traction been going pretty well with that? It's been good. So it kind of took a a little while to heat up. But then just having come out of Q4, it was very, very good. And if I can just keep things on the same timeline that they were you know, with the first business, I'll have another exit in four years. <laughs> Do you <laughs> so, feel like n- now, though, you can run it so much better in a way where you can, I don't want to say waste less time, but it kind of is, right? Where you, you've been through it and definitely. you don't have to trial and tribulate. Yeah, no, I, I mean, a lot of the sort of mistakes that I made the first time around, I don't have to repeat. I already know you know, the partners and the agencies and the type of people that I want to work with. I don't have to waste any time. And I don't have any capital constraints this time around, which first time around was how much more of a loan can I get? Makes sense. All right, cool. I think that's, uh, those are all the questions I had. I, I appreciate just being super honest. And of course, congrats on all of your success here. Because I think opting for anonymous, I had the last thing was where can people follow you, but I'm going to keep, since we're going to keep it anonymous, I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) So 
And I also don't put on anything. So <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that Googling you. So there was really nothing around. No reason to follow me. I just right. posted red on my Instagram. Well, appreciate it. And uh, thanks for the time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.